we'll just get right on into Deuteronomy 31, where we left off last time. This is a very interesting section to me, because he, he lays out the things that he will bless for, the things he will curse for, but then he gives people uh, encouragement to do that which is right, <clears throat> and reiterates then that he has set before us life and death, uh, blessing and cursing. So God is very positive, and here as they're about to go into the promised land, he encourages them, tries to strengthen them, tries to give them a positive spin on things, and yet at the same time not denying their tendencies as human beings and what the history of mankind had been, and even some projections in the future where uh, people will not respond correctly. So God, in his sovereignty, high above and here below, knows people pretty well. And yet out of it, he intends to, whatever his methods, his deep and mysterious ways, to bring some of us through successfully to have, be here to help set up his kingdom on earth. And we need to keep in mind that God a long time ago determined that he was only going to bring out 144,000 truly successful ones who would be the bride of Christ. The rest will await their salvation, for the most part their opportunity at salvation, to the millennium and the great white throne judgment where they will be able to have an opportunity under better conditions than that which you and I face today. <clears throat> so, be it known that out of this end-time revival of God's truth from Herbert Armstrong down through today and in the next few years, God is going to bring about a pretty substantial number of people to finish out the 144,000. So there is great opportunity ahead, and he encourages us to choose life. Now, as we go into chapter 31, and I hope 32 today, we're going to see basically the same story that he provides to us in the Minor Prophets, particularly perhaps in this instance, Micah, uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, and the first half of Zechariah. But the story is also included in Isaiah 40 through 55. Essentially the same story. Well, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He uses the same methods. Uh, he calls people to do a job and sets them aside or apart for that. But let's go into chapter 31 then <clears throat> and see what he has more for us as he prepares us to go into the promised land. Now, this is for you and me today in the next application of these things, because the church has gone through uh, a calling, an opportunity, a failure, Laodiceanism, and then a scattering into spiritual captivity, which we are still experiencing to this day. 
So the next thing is going to be a gathering and an opportunity for the spiritual Jews to finish the work of God here at the end. At the same time, our nation has been given an opportunity by God in this whole continent, really, which, when God expanded the borders, became an entire, in its entirety the promised land. And we have fouled it up so badly that the nation itself is on the verge of going into the cursings, and in fact, already is. If you read Deuteronomy 28, as we did a couple of weeks ago, it's pretty obvious that these uh, pestilences, diseases, and various curses are already upon us. It is simply a matter of the amount of intensity and before the entire society and culture falls. And the cracks are getting bigger and bigger, uh, and have been especially in the last month or two. So who knows when it's all coming down. But those people will then have their opportunity that survive in the millennium when Christ returns and begins to regather uh, physical Israel and then spreads his kingdom around the earth. So the good news is ahead, and even as the nation is about to go down, we are in position to be spiritually and physically blessed just as they come apart. So let's see this in chapter 31 as God lays it out further. Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old this day. I can no more go out and come in. Uh, I mean, obviously he was about to climb a mountain and die, but his uh, ability to do things had diminished. Even though he still was strong, uh, he was getting old. Also the Eternal has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. So two things were happening. He was getting old, his time to die was near, and God had told him because of the infringement there when he uh, struck the rock, he would not go into that promised land. He will go into the kingdom of God, I think I said last week. He's in Hebrews 11 as one of those who will be in that promised land. Verse 3, the eternal your God, he will go over before you, Moses speaking to Israel, and he will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall possess them. And Joshua, he shall go over before you, as the eternal has said. So he had appointed that Joshua to lead on where Moses stopped. And the eternal shall do to them as he did to Sihon and to Og, kings of the Amorites, and to the land of whom he destroyed, or them whom he destroyed. Now he is doing the same thing, if you notice Haggai and Zechariah. He is even sending someone and using the same name in type, Joshua, who led them out and into that promised land. And the same thing is true here in the end time, using the same story. Uh, and the encouragements we'll see are the same as he gives us in Zephaniah and Haggai and, and Isaiah. He also says that the Assyrian will come into our land and he will destroy them. Uh, before our faces, and he will drive the people that are in this land out so that his people can finish his work here. 
And the Eternal shall give them up before your face, that you may do unto them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. And then he tells them what mental attitude, what attributes of mind they ought to have. Be strong. This is not a time to weaken. It is not, not a time to be tentative. It is not a time to wonder and be confused. It is a time to read the Scriptures and move forward in faith, even in the face of what is happening in our nation and in this world around us. We know the end of the story. We know God has called us to do a job. So he says, don't be faint, don't be weary, be strong. Now we are facing the same situation they were. The land was full of enemies. But he said he would take care of them. Our land is full of enemies to anyone who will serve and obey God. God will take care of us. So be strong, brethren, and of a good courage. Courageous, ready to face whatever is coming. So we have to gird up our minds to pray for strength and to pray for courage. Now God, over and over, mentions these same things he's talking about right here. As I said, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Isaiah, all repeat these same things. So we are going to be facing formidable foes. Remember the spies who went into the land, came back and said, Hey, this is too much. We can't do it. They're too big. They're giants. They have bigger guns, bigger bows, bigger spears. They're dug in. They have walls. We can't do this. Only two said, Yes, we can and one of them was set here to lead the men because of that attitude that he had. God would not tell us to be strong and of a good courage unless we needed it. He wouldn't repeat it in those prophecies for the end time scenario. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we are facing the same things they faced here. Be strong and of a good courage, fear not. Remember Isaiah 7 and 8? He talks about the conspiracy at the end time. And he said, don't fear them, fear me. So, the fear not is the trepidation we might have about the enemies that we might face. The real fear is to have fear of God who holds blessing and cursing in his hand life and death in his hand. There's the one that we stand in awe of, revere, worship, and serve. But don't fear the world around you. Don't fear, nor be afraid of them. He says it in two different ways there. Why? Because human beings tend to fear and be afraid of someone more powerful, with bigger weapons, than they have. And we won't be carrying weapons anyway, will we? 
We will be trusting God to take care of us. For the eternal your God, he it is that does go with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. And we've seen scriptures that say the exact same thing in Isaiah and in the Minor Prophets. God will not forsake us. There in Isaiah, he says, will a mother forget her nursing child? He said, she'll forget her nursing child before I forget you. So he says the same thing to us in the end time prophecy in Isaiah. He's saying right here, I will not fail you nor forsake you. The only danger really, the only problem that could arise is that we might forsake him. That's the only danger. He will not forsake us. Moses called to Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel. So he called Joshua up. Everyone was there listening. And told him, Be strong and of a good courage. For you must go with this people to the land which the Eternal has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall cause them to inherit it. Now, why did he give this encouragement at that time to the one who would be the leader? Because Joshua had been there when Moses was hands down the one God had appointed to lead. He had seen the ups and downs of the people. He had seen the Ten Commandments given. He had seen Israel turn to idol worship. He had seen their wanderings. Maybe he grew up in those wanderings and therefore didn't die. But he saw the whole history. Maybe, I don't know, I didn't really look it up. He might not have even been there at Sinai. He might have been born afterward. Uh, I'd have to check that. Just the detail doesn't matter really for what I'm trying to say. He had seen the ups and downs. He had seen the land by going in himself ahead of time and seeing his compatriots, the other spies, say, no way. And only one stood with him to say, we can do this. Well, now God was putting that on his shoulders. And with the history he had seen, and the murmuring and complaining and griping and talking Moses down that he had watched... He knew that he had a severe challenge ahead. That if they even had questioned Moses over and over, what chance did he have? But Moses told him to be strong and of good courage. You're going to lead them in there and cause them to inherit the land. And the eternal, he it is that does go before you. He will be with you, he will not fail you, neither forsake you, fear not, neither be dismayed. So he said, yes, it may look difficult, it may look formidable, but God will go before you and you have nothing to worry about, so don't be afraid or dismayed or worried. Just move forward. God tells us the same. Verse 9, And Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, 
which bore the ark of the covenant of the eternal and of all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, and in our rotation, that's what we came up with, and I started doing this at the end of the seventh year, at the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm just slow and didn't get it finished. So here we are still going through it. But uh, I felt it should be done on time as instructed here. Verse 11, When all Israel has come to appear before the Eternal your God in the place which he shall choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and children and the stranger that is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn and fear the Eternal your God and observe to do all the words of this law. So this is something that God preserved to be done. It's still here. So I think it still should be done. That it is very prophetic as well. Verse 13, And that their children which have not known anything may hear and learn to fear the Eternal your God as long as you live in the land where you go over Jordan to possess it. And the Eternal said to Moses, Behold, your days approach that you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of the congregation that I may give him a charge, a commission, a job, And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of the congregation. So there had been a preliminary instruction, and now it was to be a formalized ceremony. So things were laid out, people were warned and told, and then it was reiterated. It was done in a formal way so that it could not be denied. And the Eternal appeared in the tabernacle in a pillar of a cloud. So God makes it more real. And the pillar of the cloud stood over the door of the tabernacle. Interestingly, I saw a book this week called the Pseudepigrapha of the Old Testament. And what that means is that there has been a collection of ancient writings... Uh, that are telling some of the same stories that are in the Bible, but they were not included in the Bible. Even the Bible itself mentions the book of Jasher and the book of Enoch as being writings that were out there and that they had some valid information in them. Now, everything there was not uh, important enough or perhaps uh, even accurate enough to be included in the Scriptures. But they were ancient writings that added detail to some of the things that God did choose to put in the Scripture. But some of these uh, ancient records were not translated into English out of the Hebrew until just recently. So they were included in a book they called the Pseudepigrapha. Pseudo means uh, that which is not actually real or could be fake. It doesn't necessarily carry the connotation of fake but that which was not the real thing, let's say. As opposed to Scripture, this was records that people wrote, uh, giving different detail, perhaps, to the story. 
Well, it's quite a thick volume, and there are several, actually several volumes of it. But I found it very interesting that the area that they mentioned did not fit the Middle East, uh, to add some confirmation. It fits better over here, far better. And it talks about the temple treasures, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, and various other things, and even this, which I had not thought of, but it might make some sense, I don't know. It said that when the temple was torn down so that not one stone laid upon another, that the Jews actually took all those temple stones and hid them underground. That being the case, apparently, or possibly, is it a possibility that those would be uncovered at some point and may be used to reassemble the temple as it originally was? I don't know that that will be the case, but it was an interesting thing that just got translated into English very recently and published. And it fits far better here in the narrative, in the story itself, than over there. It just doesn't fit over there. So, for what it's worth, uh, there were a lot of stories in there in a volume that thick, but that was about four or five pages that described all this, and uh, I found it very, very interesting. He will say down here, and what, that's what brought it to my mind this morning as I was going back over this, that, the, that this law would be put in the Ark of the Covenant as a witness to us and against us if need be. And maybe God has hidden that and maybe the original that Moses is talking about, the whole book of the law, for instance, uh, will be in that tabernacle as a witness of all these things that God has said. And doesn't he tell us in Isaiah 40 through 44 that we are his witnesses, that he is God? He's talking about the end time people. Not just two, but the whole group. So anyway, he appeared in the tabernacle. He's talked there in Zechariah how he will be a wall of fire around his people and a protection from the heat, a canopy from the heat. That's in Isaiah 2 or 4. Uh, or six, maybe it's six. Sometimes I get it confused. Anyway, it's there. Uh, so even as he was a cloud and a pillar of fire, then he said he is going to be again. <clears throat> so will this all be reenacted here at the end time? Wouldn't surprise me a bit based on all the prophecies that talk about it and even this one. Verse 16, And the Eternal said to Moses, Behold, you shall sleep with your fathers, and this people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, where they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. We just read that he was making a, another covenant with them that was apart from Sinai, a covenant of blessing for obedience and of cursing for disobedience in chapter 28, 29, and 30. And here he tells them, you're going in the land, don't fear, be of good courage, I'm with you. And then he tells Moses, when they get there, they're not going to drive the people out like I'm telling them to. 
and they are going to worship their gods and forget me. This nation has done that. And we as a church became lackadaisical, Laodicean, and have done the same thing. Hopefully we are recovering from it and can be in the next upswing of things. But the nation is not, and it is going down, unfortunately. I hate to see people suffer. I hate to see them perish. But there's no other way for fat, satisfied, idol-worshipping Americans to learn anything. It's the only way. It's sad. Verse 17, Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them. So that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us? Our God is not among us. Now God had already said, I will not fail you nor forsake the covenant, and then he would turn his face away. He said the same thing in all the end time prophecies. He would turn his face for a while from his people and then turn it back after we had been sufficiently chastened as a church and begin to regather us. And he will turn it, they are destroyed and humbled, and then he will turn his face back to them. But people will turn it around and say, well, God just forsook us. We forsook God, and then he turned his face away. He couldn't bear to look upon it. God never fails with his promises. Never. And will not. He only turns and punishes when we do not keep our promises. 18, and I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they shall have worked. And that day they are turned to other gods, or in that they have turned to other gods. Now therefore write you this song for you, and teach it the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. So he is going to give us the words of a song here in a little bit. And he's going to, they will have set it to music to be sung. So there will be a witness of what God had promised, what God had said, and what they then did. For when I shall have brought them into the land which I swore to their fathers that flows with milk and honey, and they shall have eaten and filled themselves and waxed fat, we are the fattest, most obese nation on earth today, America. Then will they turn to other gods and serve them and provoke me and break my covenant. <clears throat> and it shall come to pass, when many evils and troubles are befallen them, that this song shall testify against them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their seed. For I know their imagination, which they go about even now, before I have brought them into the land which I swore. He said, I, their, their minds are already turning. They're already sitting here about to cross the Jordan, thinking about all the things they want to do when they get over there and take over that land that is flowing with milk and honey. 
and their minds are already on materialism, self-satisfaction, and sin. Is that not true of the pilgrims who came here to escape tyranny, they thought? They were going to build a new land. They were going to prosper here. They were going to go forward. But selfishness with human beings sets in even before the blessing is given. Verse 22, Moses therefore wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. And he gave Joshua the son of Nun a charge, a responsibility, a job, a commission, and said, Be strong and of a good courage. says this over and over, doesn't he? When you get to the book of Joshua, which talks about them going across the river and into the land. He uses the exact same words. Be strong and of a good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. He says that over and over too. I'm going to be with you. I'll be there. I'll take charge. I'll lead you. This is, this is my job. And you will lead, and I will take care of you. 24, And it came to pass, when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book, until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal, saying, Take this book of the law, and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal, your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. It has disappeared. It was taken by the Philistines in the days of David. It was returned. And no one knows for sure where it is today. It may be on the earth. <clears throat> Revelation, I think it's 19, talks about how the ark appears out of the heavens. Now, whether that is a spiritual thing and this, this one on the earth was merely a replica of it, I do not know. But he said it would be here as a witness. So it is either the original one here buried somewhere and will be a witness here in the end time, or it would come down from heaven. Christ will send it as a witness at that time. I would not be surprised if it were both. It may be here for his people in the end, and if that is a different one in the heavens, it may be that it is brought out here and used as a witness. And then when the abomination takes place in the temple and we have to flee for our lives into Zion, maybe it goes there then into heaven, the heaven of God's throne. I do not know. He doesn't clarify that. We can only speculate to some degree. But in some way, somehow... I firmly believe it will be a witness here in the end time. <clears throat> Verse 27, For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. Hosea says we're stiff-necked and rebellious. He says we're like a heifer that plants all four feet and will not be led. She'd rather choke before she'd be led forward. Israel is not broke to lead, put it that way. We fight it every step of the way. Some will be humble. 
Some will be meek and be willing to be led to do God's will. Others will plant their feet and become stubborn for whatever reason, resist, the rope will be turned loose and they'll go their own way. God knows us pretty well. Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, you have been rebellious against the eternal. How much more after my death? So, (coughs) Moses enunciates what I just said was probably going through Joshua's mind. (laughs) If they resisted you, what chance do I have? You know, so many resisted Herbert Armstrong even. And threw rocks at him. And then someone, anyone who is chosen to lead the next phase is going to say, what chance do I have? Based on recent history. These things come and go. There is nothing new under the sun. The same challenges that Moses and Joshua faced... Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah faced in rebuilding the temple, and so will this end-time work that will be done. Face the same resistance. Face the same enemies. But God will lead for those who are willing to follow. Verse 28, Gather you... Or gather unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears, and call heaven and earth to record against them. I'm going to do this before man and God. Heaven and earth will be given witness of what I'm saying. For I know that after my death... You will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. Because you will do evil in the sight of the Eternal to provoke him to anger through the works of your hands. So I think that he is saying not only now, as they were about to go into the promised land at that time, But on down through history, through the generations, to the end of the age, the same thing will befall. And it has in the church, and hopefully we're getting over it, and it has in the nation, and the cursings are just now beginning to escalate like a snowball, small, headed off a cliff that will grow and grow. This will be followed you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Eternal to provoke him to anger through the works of your hands. And Moses spoke in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. So Moses' song, then, is the next 43 verses. So this is what he proclaimed to heaven and earth, God in heaven and mankind on the earth, to Israel just before they went in the promised land. And here we are gathered 
to do the same thing in the promised land with an end-time work. Same promises, only more so. Having the Holy Spirit, having more knowledge, having more history that has happened since these words were uttered to drill the situation home. These people did exactly what Moses said they would do. God sent them into captivity, brought them back out more than once. And here he gave us this beautiful land. Let us return to the land of promise. And we have done the same thing all over again. But this is the last round. This is the last round. The Father and the Son are going to come to the earth and rule it with a rod of iron and bring peace, happiness, and prosperity to those who survive the Holocaust to come shortly ahead of us. So let's see that laid out now in this song that was set to music. I don't know that this one has ever really been set to music in the end time church. I don't think Dwight Armstrong touched this one, did he? I don't remember seeing anything in there that we sing in our hymn book as I went through it. Maybe let's pay attention to that as we go through here and see. He used mostly the Psalms and a few other places uh, in, in writing the hymn book that we use. But maybe somebody with the capacity ought to set this to music so it could be sung. Forty-three verses would be a pretty long song. We can read it here. Let's just do that for now. Anyway, chapter 32. Here it is. Here's the song. Give ear, O you heavens, and I will speak. And hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. So he just said this will be a witness in heaven and on earth. That's the way he starts the song. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. My speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Now this was picked up by the prophets who used water as a, uh, an analogy to teaching, to doctrine, to truths. And the apostles and Christ himself talked about that as well, about how his, the water of the word, the proper teaching of God. So this is a symbolism that started way back in the Old Testament and Christ brought forward uh, and then used through the, the uh, apostles as well. A rain is what makes things grow. Water from above and the dew is what makes plants produce and animals to thrive. So God's Word is what is needed to cause human beings to grow and to thrive and to be blessed. And that's what the Bible was written for. It's the words of God that if we live by it and follow it, we will thrive and be blessed. Verse 3, because I will publish the name of the Eternal, ascribe you greatness unto our God. So as the words I'm about to speak are like rain to you. Listen, we're going to talk about God here. Look to God as great. How did Christ tell us to pray? He didn't get into all the YHVH and the various things that God might be called Jehovah, and however you might say it, and so on. He said, this is how you pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
So we just address him as our father. We don't have to worry about all those names too much. He's our father. That's what he said to use when you pray. Some people pray to Jesus. It's not in the Bible. It's not in there. But they do. He told us to pray our Father. Now, all prayers are funneled through him as our mediator to the Father. He is our high priest, the one who speaks to the Father about us, who pleads for forgiveness and mercy for us from the Father. So even though we address the Father, it goes through Christ and we end our prayer by saying, in His authority, in His name, so be it. But the way Christ gave the sample prayer there was the way Moses starts this. He says, these are good words. Publish the greatness of God. Hallowed be His name. That's a good way to begin a prayer, is to talk to God about His creation, His universe, this earth that He has made so beautifully for us to live upon, to hallow or set aside His holy name, to remind ourselves more than Him, in that sense, who He really is. We don't just say, My Father in heaven, give me what I want. We don't even approach him as my father in that sense. Christ said, approach him as our father because we're a family. And then the first thing we do is give (coughs) credence to his name. So give greatness to God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. Christ is called the chief cornerstone there in Ephesians 2.20, is he not? And the rock of offense, and various places throughout the Bible, Christ is described as a rock or a stone. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. If you're going to have a song about people and what they ought to do, you've got to start with their leader, the holy, mighty, majesty leader, not human leaders. Moses pointed to Joshua as a human leader, even as he had been one. But first and foremost, we approach God, because he is the ultimate leader. So give him his due. Verse 5, they have corrupted themselves, their spot is not the spot of his children, they're a perverse and crooked generation. So he's contrasting the God in heaven of holiness to human beings. Do you thus requite the eternal, O foolish people, and unwise? Is not he your father that has bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Why do you have pride? Why do you have vanity? Why do you think so much of yourself? You're created. Created by one who had the power to do so. He sent his son to buy us, to redeem us, without money. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver to death. But he redeemed us with his life, with his death, and then 
by his life particularly. So we're bought and paid for. We're slaves of Christ. The New Testament makes that very clear. Has he not made you and established you? Did we create a church? Did Herbert Armstrong create something? Or did God reveal things to him and then he called people out of the world to respond? Verse 7, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. So we're in, in, in this song we are also told, remember days of old. Those people then could remember back through the wilderness, remember back to Mitzrayim, remember back to Noah's flood, remember the things that had happened to that date. We have not only the history they had, but more has been added to it so that we have ourselves replete with the knowledge of mankind from Adam until today. So we have even more witness than those people had. We have a witness of what they were about to do. <clears throat> Remember the days of old. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. So there were the, those that there that they were to go to to understand, to grasp. That's what we're doing here today in a formal situation, reviewing these things. You can read them. You can get a lot out of them. But God wants us to go through it in a formal way. Verse 8, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. So God's established certain areas that would be set aside for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, ultimately the children of Israel as the promised land. He knew he was going to work through that branch of the family uh, as a witness to the world, good and bad it turns out, and good in the long run when Christ returns and the others see Israel turn to God, obey God, and they then themselves do the same and become a part of the kingdom of God on earth. <clears throat> Verse 9, For the eternal's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. So he was going to work through Jacob. Is it a part of the identification of modern-day Israel that God established his end-time truth, his end-time work, in this nation, in Joseph, in Ephraim, in Israel, one of the, the leading son of Jacob. He said he was going to remove Reuben as the firstborn, and he calls Ephraim his firstborn there in Jeremiah 31, I believe it is. So he changed the birth order, and the leader would be Ephraim, leader in blessings, both spiritual or both physical and spiritual, let's say. So this land is the most blessed on earth in terms of natural resources and weather and ability to produce crops. And it is also where God has established and watered his word and provided it for this nation and the world. This is where God is working. 
And he established that in the southwestern United States. And he is going to finish the last work in the southwestern United States around Zion and original Jerusalem. Now, you don't have to necessarily take that on faith, do you? He's already shown us. He's already established in this end time where he was going to do it. He didn't do it in the Middle East. I know of no one, maybe there were a few, who were called out over there and became part of the church. In this end time, there has never been a congregation of God's people in the Middle East. A few went there because they wanted to be baptized in the River Jordan. And now with the end time coming, uh, some still feel that's the place. And so there is a small representation of those who were called out in the end time work who have since moved there. But God didn't begin a work there is what I'm trying to say. He didn't establish it there. He established it here. And secondarily in Canada. And thirdly in England or the British Isles. And fourthly on down from there. Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Places where the people of Israel migrated. That's where he established the work. Not very many in China. Not very many in other places on earth. But you can trace where Israel is simply by where God moved people and called them out. It's a matter of recent history that has transpired. <clears throat> and he says that he is going to continue it. It's going to be in the same area, same nation, same place. But he says it will be in the wilderness, the mountains, and the desert. I'll raise in the wilderness seven trees, Isaiah 41. This is where you come to find a wilderness, deserts, and mountains in the United States. Well, there's a little bit in eastern Oregon and Washington, but not much. But it's primarily the southwest where you find that. And that's where he raised up the end-time work, was in a city of traffic, as Ezekiel 17 says, Los Angeles area, but it's part of this same area. It's just that he was in the city for a purpose, and now we are in the wilderness for an even greater purpose. And this is where people will come. Whether we are here to do it or not, I don't know, but the place is established. If we will do our part, he will use us to be part of it. If we don't, there's plenty of stones around here he can raise up to do it with. And he's even threatened that. But I don't think he'll have to. I think some will do as told. And one-tenth of what was the church, God will stir to come, as Haggai clearly shows. <clears throat> so, he's bought us and established us. All right, for the Lord's portion, verse 9, is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. So, wherever it is in the end time, that is where the people of Jacob obviously have to be. Verse 10, He found him in a desert land, 
and in the waste howling wilderness. Repeats what I just said from other scriptures. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. So even the promised land itself was surrounded by desert and wilderness. It wasn't all completely fruitful around that area that was the original promised land. And even it has become desolate on purpose since then, so that Jerusalem itself would be desolate and no man would want to go there. That's what is prescribed by Scripture. Verse 11, As an eagle stirs up her nest, flutters over her young, spreads abroad her wings, takes them, bears them on her wings. So here he starts using the alliteration of the apple of his eye and of an eagle protecting and stirring her young. The original Jerusalem even has a couple of hills that are shaped like wings. So the Eternal alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. God didn't need some idols of the Babylonians or the pagans along with him. He needed himself, and that's all he needed. And if he doesn't need idols, why do we? Verse 13, He made him ride on the high places of the earth, that he might eat the increase of the fields. And he made him to suck uh, honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock. So it is to God's glory that he can turn a wilderness area into a productive place. Isaiah 51 tells us right here in the end time, he's going to make the desert bloom as a rose. Well, that's in 35. But in 51, he says he'll make it as Eden. Same conditions the Garden of Eden had. In the same area, the Garden of Eden originally was. That has become desert. Now, didn't he, when he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, cause thorns, cactus, all kinds of things to arise to give mankind trouble? So outside the Garden of Eden, outside the Garden of God, he turned it into a desert and a wilderness with all the appurtenant plants that bite, stick, scratch, and punch. That's where we are today. Now, where was I here? Uh, verse 14. Butter of kine and milk of sheep, with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan, and goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat, and to drink the pure blood of the grape. So they've been wandering in a wilderness desert area for 40 years, and they were about to cross a river and go into an area that God had blessed and would bless. But a problem arose. Verse 15. But Jeshurun, which is another name for Israel, uh, waxed fat and kicked. You are waxed fat, you are grown thick, you are covered with fatness. Then he forsook God, which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. So he's talking about blessings that God would give, and instead of being forever thankful for to God, to God, we enjoy those things and forget God. 
It's very human to do. Verse 16, they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations provoked they him to anger. You know, he says, I will, if you'll obey me, I will bless you. I will give you every blessing that you can imagine. But instead, we turn to other things and then forget him and worship the things. In a nation that holds materiality is one of its greatest gods. God is jealous. He says, I'm the one who would bless you if you'd obey me, and now you've gone. You'd rather have cheap Chinese trinkets. You'd rather have junk food than the good things of the earth that I can provide. You'd rather genetically modify it to something completely different than what I created. And on and on it goes, and how we've departed from God and done things our way. And now we're beginning to suffer the sickness the death, the plagues, the diseases that come with perverting that which God gave us. And it is going to be terrible. Verse 17, They sacrificed to devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. Created some of our own gods, haven't we? A television, a computer, an iPad, a smartphone. All those are new gods that weren't then. They're new. Now, are those things intrinsically evil of themselves? No. Used properly, they can be good tools. But used wrongly? to promote sin and violence, to take our time that ought to be used more judiciously to serve God, to study these words of life, perhaps, to pray, we use instead to dither away the time with our screens. So those are new gods, recently created, that we serve. They don't have to be gods. They can just be screens that we use for good purposes. But if we turn them into gods that take our time and take the time that ought to be devoted to God, then they become idols. And it could be anything. So these are new gods. 18, of the rock that begat you, you are unmindful, and have forgotten God that formed you. Don't have much time to think about God, to contemplate God, to meditate on the things of God, to read His words and see how they ought to apply in our lives, because we're too busy chasing fast food and televisions or computers or whatever, or cars or you name it, new things that have become our gods that take our time. Not that a car is wrong of itself, but people sometimes idolize their cars. Boy, all they want to do is work on their cars, make them prettier, you know, make them faster, make them this, make them that. And that 
is their hobby that takes their time. Others, it's golf balls and little clubs, you know, whatever, that takes all their time, or fishing, or whatever it might be, so that we don't devote the time to Him that He deserves. And the whole church got that way, and that's why we are scattered today. We became unmindful of God, or He wasn't the first thing in our minds, let's say. Other things took precedence. Verse 19, And when the Eternal saw it, He abhorred them because of the provoking of His sons and of His daughters. He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a very presumptuous, arrogant generation, children in whom is no faith. Depending on themselves and the things around them for their sustenance, for their future, and for getting God. Will there be faith on the earth when Christ returns? Not very much. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. Things that don't last, that are transitory. You can't take with you when you die. Treasure in heaven? Eh, who needs that? I got bank account. Big or little. I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. There is right now a consortium of nations who are planning our demise. He says it right here. 22, for a fire is kindled in my anger, and shall burn into the lowest hell, and shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. Tells us there in the book of Haggai that his people are going to be called out just before God shakes the heavens and the earth and turns his wrath loose on the people of this earth. We need to be seeking him. Finding Him. Putting our gods aside to serve the true God. I will heap mischief upon them. I will spin my arrows upon them. They shall be burned with hunger and devoured with burning heat and with bitter destruction. Read the book of Revelation or Daniel. I will also send the teeth of beasts upon them with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword without and terror within shall destroy both the young man and the virgin, the suckling also with the man of gray hair. Young and old, all will be affected. I said I would scatter them into the corners, corners of the earth, he says, in other places. I would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men. Didn't we read at the end of chapter 28 that we would become slaves and no one would even think we were worth buying? Verse 27, Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, and lest they should say, Our hand is high, and the Eternal has not done all this. God says, I'm going to bring you down. You won't be able to say, We have a high hand. We're the greatest nation on earth. We will not suffer widowhood or loss. As Revelation, I think, 18 and other places say, Isaiah says it. We're not going to have widowhood. We're not going to lose our children. We're the greatest nation on earth. 
Americans are still rising in pride, saying, we're going to take this thing into our own hands. We're going to have a revolution and we're going to kick out the bankers and the politicians and we're going to save America. No, it isn't going to happen. God has proclaimed that it will fall. Young and old, he will scatter. And we can't say God has not done this. He will make it clear that he's the one doing it. For they are a nation void of counsel, neither is there any understanding in them. They don't know what's going on. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How should one chase a thousand, and two put ten thousand to flight, except their rock had sold them, and the Eternal had shut them up? God said He would protect us, bless us. Chapter 28, if we'd obey. If we disobeyed, it would turn around, and one would chase a thousand. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Who could stand against us, since God is our rock? Except that we deny Him, and the rock quits protecting us. Where does, where does His elect go? Where does the faithful part of the church go? Into the rock. The secret places of the stairs. This area, Zion, is where God's people will gather. These physical rocks represent a symbolism of the eternal rock. Verse 32, For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter. We are becoming a gay society. Started out small and it's increasing by leaps and bounds. The closets are emptying. It's happening right here in our own nation. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asps. The things that we eat, the things that we drink, are killing us like a snake bite. Is not this laid up in store with me and sealed up among my treasures? To me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. This is a real pleasant song to listen to, isn't it? <laughs> That's kind of a dirge. God had this set to music to remind us of who He is and what we would do. And now what you and I have done and why we got separated and we got to do something about it. For the Eternal shall judge His people and repent Himself or relent Himself for His servants when He sees that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. And He shall say, Where are their gods, their rock, in whom they trusted? All this society we built with our big military to protect us with our granaries, our storages, our oil, our 
munificence, our wealth, all the things that were in this country that we look to instead of the one who put them here. But all of this is not going to save us. We have all the natural resources that are needed, by far. In fact, they think under the ground of America and around our shores, there's enough oil, there's enough gold and silver and everything precious, rare earth, all the things needed by a people to last for hundreds and hundreds more years. And now we're dickering with the Chinese to give it all to them because we wanted Walmart stuff from China. So we'll trade this wonderful land that God gave us for cheap trinkets that have become our gods. All the comforts that we as Americans think we need. Sad. Truly sad. And our power is gone. How are those gods going to save us? All the things that we think we have. Not going to happen. Verse 38, Which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Be your protection. All these things we've trusted in. Let them, yeah. Yeah, they're going to save you now. See now that I, even I, am he and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. He holds the keys, life and death. Therefore choose life, he said as we read last week. I wound and I heal. He's wounded the church. Now he's going to start healing it. He's beginning to wound the nation, and he'll heal it once Christ returns to set up the kingdom. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. I've decreed this violence to come, he says, and it's going to happen. We hate to see it. We would not allow it to happen. We would save this country, as Jeremiah 50 or 51 says, if we could. But we can't. Because God has decreed that it has to be destroyed. And we can't say we could have saved ourselves and our military would save us. Isn't going to happen. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. Let's trust in the one that can grant eternal life. Happiness, joy, and peace, and no tears. Verse 41, If I whet my glittering sword and my hand take hold on judgment, I will remember venge- render vengeance to my enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O you nations! With his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful to his land and to his people. So when this is all said and done, God will turn and show mercy. And he's going to show mercy to the few who will obey even while this is going on. Our way of escape. 44, and Moses came and spoke all the words of this song. That was the end of it. God shows destruction, then he shows blessing. That's a pattern throughout the Bible. There's some pretty grim places in the Bible, aren't there? God always says, I'm going to do this, and it's going to be horrible, then I will bless you. I will do this, you will repent, then I will bless you. 
So God gets us both sides. He kicks us in the teeth and he pats our head. It's back and forth. Blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing. Obedience and disobedience. Repeated over and over. But God does not spare us the horrible parts. But in each passage where he tells us how horrible it will get, he, he doesn't fail in any, any place I can think of or remember. It's a pattern through the Bible. That when he's done kicking you in the stomach, he says, but everything's going to be all right. I will be merciful and I will bless you. So there's always hope in spite of ourselves. Yeah, we can read this and say, yeah, I do. I put too many things ahead of God. I have my idols, myself being the biggest one, we have to say always. I put myself ahead of God. But if we'll repent and turn to Him with our heart instead of to ourselves with our hearts, He says, I'll bless you. Everything will turn out good. So he spoke this song in the ears of the people, he and Joshua the son of Nun. And Moses made an end of speaking all these words to all Israel. End the song, he says. This is it. And he said to them, Set your hearts to all the words which I testify among you this day, which you shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this law. So the law I've given you, the song we've just sung, he says, Remember. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. It's something that is not vanity, that is transitory, that will end. It can lead to eternal life and eternal blessing. And through this thing you shall prolong your days in the land where you go over Jordan to possess it. He says he will turn to us when we turn to him with our whole heart, and we will go into the land and possess it and rebuild the desolate places... Heal the breach between God and man. Reconcile the church, or a 10% part of it, to him, which will begin something that will cover the earth before it is done. The Eternal spoke to Moses that selfsame day, saying, Get you up into this mountain, Abraham, unto Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, that is over against Jericho, and behold the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel for a possession. He says, I want you to see an overview of this. You don't get to go there right now, but I want you to see it and understand what I'm going to do with your people. And die in the mount where you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people. Because you trespassed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zen, because you sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. An act of temper by Moses was in that sense selfish. And selfish means he put himself and his anger and his frustration ahead of God. And he was penalized for that. It was idol worship. When you boil it right down, he put himself and his anger and his frustration ahead of God. And he could not be an example of idol worship, self-worship, as the leader of Israel without suffering a certain penalty that came. And here it did. 
But he's going to be in the kingdom of God. All will be forgiven. <clears throat> we make mistakes too. But we pray for forgiveness. We pray that he give us his spirit, that we walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. And he gives us a new start every morning through the sacrifice of Christ so that we will not, do not have to suffer those penalties if we will repent and turn to him. Yet you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land which I give the children of Israel. So he was simply physically restricted for that period of time, but will go there as a leader in the kingdom of God. So there's an awful lot to chew on here. Uh, and it's good that we review this song about the goodness of God and his blessings and what happens when we are not and how we're punished, and then hopefully we'll repent and have His mercy at the end of it.